Well, what a week. You know, weeks like this, or even last week where we were unable to gather, I, I kind of got some, some flashbacks of, of uh, last March through June when our church couldn't gather. And I was, uh, I was getting a little freaked out on, oh no, here we go again. But praise God, it was only one week. Um, I'm just reminded of what a gift it is to gather. Like, may we never take this for granted. We have brothers and sisters in closed countries where the persecution is so heavy that there are believers that literally risk their lives by leaving their home and sneaking out to go to a worship gathering in a different home, knowing that if they get caught, that's it. Either their life is over or concentration camp or some other suffering prison, and yet they go. They continue to gather because this is eternal. What's happening here when we are singing about the absolute majesty of Jesus as we sit under his word, as we encourage each other, as we are sensing the presence of God together These are eternal realities. We will be doing this forever. And so we get to just mirror it and experience but a shadow of it on this side of the resurrection. And so it is good when God's people gather together on the heels of a snowpocalypse. It's good. Last week, I did an audio recording of John chapter 6 as we're in our series. And so if you missed that, we do have the audio that's on our website. The plan last week was for our home groups to to study John chapter 7, continuing in the series. But for obvious reasons, that was not possible. Um, So our groups didn't didn't study that. So what we're going to do today is I'm going to do a very brief overview summary of chapter 7, and then I'll do a brief overview. Again, the word here is brief. I'm not good at brief, but I'm going to do my best to brief overview chapter 7 and of chapter 8, because those two chapters are really connected to chapter 9 that we're going to look at today. The themes in those two chapters carry over into chapter 9. And so what this series is doing, and the snow this week, it reminds us of the importance of your own personal study. You cannot have a healthy soul by simply being fed on a Sunday morning. You have to feed your soul from this bread of life every single day. This only way that you're going to have vitality and the strength to keep following Jesus in the middle of whatever life throws at you. And so let me give you a brief overview of chapter 7. So the whole chapter of chapter 7, John, is focused on the Feast of Tabernacles, sometimes called the Feast of Booths, or sometimes just called the Feast. So this was once a year in the fall, and it was a truly magnificent, it was huge, this like national celebration. All of the Jews would put together a Sukkot, 
or a tabernacle. It usually had walls. It was, think of it as a tent, but, but the walls were, were stable. But it was a small little shelter, if you will. And on the top, it would have palm leaves. Okay, so what you would have was a reenacting of what God's people had to go through for 40 years in the wilderness. So when they were living, they had left Egypt before the promised land for 40 years. They were wandering and they were living in tents and, and they built the tabernacle and a tabernacle is, is a word for dwelling. And so in John chapter one, where it says that Jesus came and he dwelt among us, the original, it says Jesus tabernacled among us. So there's this picture of tabernacling, of, of living together. And so all of these Jews would go out of their homes for eight days, all right? Now, there was no snow, so it was okay. For eight days, and they would go in these, these little shelters, these sukkots, and they would, they would stay there. They would eat their meals, or they would even sleep there. So if, if you go to Jerusalem, you would see these tabernacles that were all across all the streets, rooftops, because the Middle East rooftops are not like rooftops here. They're, they, you, you can walk on to the top of the rooftop. And so it would go up there and build these little shelters. And so everywhere that you look, you would see these booths, these tabernacles. Now, every single morning, the high priest would go down from the temple to a pool. That's called the Pool of Siloam. And it's right at the base of the temple. And he would hold a golden pitcher. And he would go draw water from the Pool of Siloam. And then he would walk back. Now, it wasn't just him. He would like an entourage. It was like the other priests and people were all watching. And it was a big part of of like this religious ritual of how they would celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And so he would be accompanied by others, and he would go up to the temple, and then he would pour the water into the base of the altar at the temple. And this pouring out of the water was a symbol of what was promised, for example, in Joel 2, of that the day will come when God will pour out his Spirit Onto his people. And so this pouring out of water every single morning as part of the celebration was a way of symbolizing the Holy Spirit that was being poured out. Now on the last and greatest day, so on the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles, everyone, I'm talking like think thousands upon thousands of people all crowded into Jerusalem, around the temple, and they would watch a high priest go down, pull a siloam, and, and draw the water, and they would sing songs, the songs of Hallel, or songs of praise, and so they would sing these psalms, and they were all holding these palm branches, and they would all shake them, and it was this really huge communal event, and there, so it was this massive celebration. On the eighth day, the high priest with his golden pitcher had just drawn from the pool of Siloam, and he's walking up to the temple. And then there Jesus stands up in the middle of all of that, and he starts loudly preaching. Like, can you picture that? Can you just picture? Jesus is interrupting the ritual. 
in the middle of this, of when this water is being poured out into this altar, Jesus stands up and has the audacity, well, because he is Jesus and he did make everything and he is the king of kings and he has no shame when it comes to preaching the word. Here's what it says. This is John 7, verse 37. On the last day of the feast, when all this is happening, okay, the great day, Jesus stood up. It doesn't say this, but it's already understood. With the large crowd, everyone there, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. He's yelling, y'all. Like, he's saying this loud. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Do you hear what he is preaching in front of these crowds? He says, hey, this ritual that you're doing, about the Feast of Tabernacles and pouring the water that symbolizes the Holy Spirit, it's about me. I will give the Spirit. I am Messiah. I am God in the flesh, standing right here before you come to me. Um, how do you think the religious establishment felt about Jesus hijacking their ritual and saying this whole thing here points to me, is all about me. The whole Old Testament points to me. And that whole whole spirit thing, yeah, it's about me. Come to me if you're thirsty. How do you think they felt? Well, they weren't happy. So chapter 7 shows conflict where they're very upset with Jesus over what he's claiming, which is to be God. So then chapter 8 picks up, and there's more conflict. The conflict continues with Jesus and, and the religious leaders. And so, for example, John 8, verse 12, it says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. So this right here, he says, I am. Now, whenever you hear that phrase, it should remind you of Moses when he says, who shall I say sending me? Say, I am. And so when Jesus says, I am, he is connecting himself to God himself. I am, not I know of, not I point to, I am the light of the world. And then in the rest of chapter 8, he just keeps smacking these religious leaders by telling them that they are spiritually blind, that they are slaves to their sin. And he says that they don't even know God. Like he is just dropping the gauntlet on the religious establishment. So chapter 8, verse 42. Let's read that. Jesus said to them, this is the religious leaders, 
If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. Listen to this, verse 44. You are of your father, the devil. (laughs) Hear that? This is the religious leaders. And he was like, you don't know God. You, because you don't love me and you can't hear my word, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So it just makes it very simple. If you love Jesus, then you know God as father. If you reject Jesus, then you know Satan as father. That's it. Two kingdoms, two natures. Fallen, sinful nature, following the nature of the God of this age, of Satan, or those that are born again of the Holy Spirit who love and trust Jesus, who know God as Father and have a new spiritual nature through the Holy Spirit. There's two natures, two kingdoms, two fathers. There's no third option. There's no in-between. Either you know God as Father or Satan as Father. And the way chapter 8 ends, if it couldn't get any more shocking than that, The way it ends, the last two verses, verse 58 and 59. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Oh, he says he's God. Before Abraham even was, I am. You think they were confused by what he was saying? You think that they believed the the current world's view that says Jesus never said he's God. Really? Verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him. Why? Because he was saying he's God. And they didn't believe that. He was blaspheming. They picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple because no one takes his life. He lays it And so chapter 8 ends with this conflict boiling over. (laughs) Like they're just so seething, angry at Jesus. And as we're going to see in chapter 9, like they never stop and ask, you know, maybe we should just be open-minded. Maybe we should just talk to him or hear him out. Maybe we can learn from him. No. He's a threat that has to be extinguished. And so chapter 7 and 8, the themes of the pool of Siloam, and chapter 8, how he is the light of the world, these themes are carried over into chapter 9, when the conflict is escalated to an absolute boiling point. So let's, let's spend our time this morning meditating on John chapter 9. There is your context in the last two chapters. Chapter 9. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. 
And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with his saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Miraculous. Now I'll address why disciples said what they did and how he responds to them a little bit later. Here I want you to just make an observation. I want you to observe what the problem was. So the problem was that this man was born blind. And so then I also want you to observe how Jesus heals him. Jesus spits on the dirt and he makes some mud and he puts that mud on this man's eyes. And he says, go to the pool of Siloam. And the word Siloam means sent because this man has now been sent to go display God's glory and being healed the exact same pool that the high priest would go to with the golden pitcher and draw water for the Feast of Tabernacles, that same pool, he says, go there and wash your eyes. Now, you may remember that John has seven miraculous signs. This is number six. And so after seven, it reaches a point where the, the religious leaders can't take it any longer and then that leads towards his execution. So it is getting more and more intense here with the sixth miraculous sign. Now, let's keep reading verses 8 and following. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, It is he. Others said, No, he is like him. They're like, Is that the same guy, that blind beggar? No, that can't be him. They're like, well, it sure looks like him. Maybe someone else. It's his doppelganger. What is it? Doppelganger is a high saying? All right. I'm not up to speed with pop culture. I'm trying. But some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. And he kept saying, I am the man. He's like, no, I am him. Like, it's not a stunt double. Like, it really is me. I was blind. He's I am the man. So they said to him, then how are your eyes open? They're like, what? Are you sure it was you? He's like, yes, I was blind. And they're like, how? How How were your eyes open? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? And he said, I don't know. He's like, I was blind, guys. Like, I don't know where he went. Here's all I know. I was blind my whole life. And Jesus put, he spit, which was kind of gross. And, and he put mud on my eyes. And now I can see. And it's really me. And they're, and they're like, what? Where, where, where is he? And he's like, 
you tell me, right? Verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man. Okay? So they don't know what's going on, all right? The, the, these, these crowds, remember, Siloam was a very crowded place. Jesus, on purpose, sent him to a pool where there would be many people around to see what was going on, right? And you can only imagine how he reacted, right? Oh, I can see. Like, you think he was calm, like, oh, wow, I, I can see now. Like, he must have been just going crazy. And so everyone sees, and so then they take him. They brought him to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now, it was a Sabbath day. That's important. And so note, observe that. It was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. He's having to repeat this story over and over and over. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, he's a prophet. Like, he's, he doesn't really know he was blind, but he's... He's like, well, the best that I can tell you guys is that he must be a prophet. But here's a very important thing in this whole investigation, right? It's like they set up this commission to go do an investigation on what exactly transpired that day at the Pool of Siloam. And they're doing this interrogation. Now, understand, this is a Sanhedrin. Like, this, is, this would be like going before, like, a congressional investigation. Like, this is like a big deal. This is the rulers of Israel, and they are interrogating him. And if you make an observation here that's very important, these religious leaders could care less about his sight. They don't care that he can see. There's no praising God. There's no, oh my goodness, praise God, let's go throw a party. No. They keep asking questions about how. They're like, whoa, wait, 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 tell me again, how exactly did he do it? Well, he spit on the ground and he made mud. Wait, stop right there. Tell me again, what did he do? He spit on the ground and he made mud. Like, oh, he did what? Nearly, he's like, he made mud. And they're thinking, but today's a Sabbath. That's illegal. For real. Because you had to, it, it was illegal to knead, you know, K-N-E-A-D, to knead. Like, it's illegal to, like, make bread because it would require you to do work. Because it is work to knead bread, to, to work the, the, the batter or the dough, it's, it's work. And, and so the idea is that it was a, according to oral tradition, mind you, not inspired word of God, oral tradition enforced by these religious police 
it, their understanding was the, the idea of needing bread or any kind of needing would constitute work and therefore unlawful on the Sabbath. So when Jesus spit and he was kneading the mud, that act of kneading was evil, immoral. How dare he make mud on the Sabbath and have the audacity to heal someone on a holy day designed for rest. That's where they had come. That's where the religion had taken them, missing the whole point of the law, the whole point of the Sabbath. Let's keep reading. Verse 18. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight. They're like, no, you're an imposter. It's not possible. They, they just can't believe it. They did not believe. It says, until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. Now, now this is getting a little bit crazy. Like, they don't believe him, so they call his parents. This is not a child. This is a grown man, but they call his parents. And they asked him, is this your son who you say was born blind? They're like, the, the way they're asking questions, it's so, they're attacking. How then does he see? And his parents answered, we know that this is our son. And he was born blind. They're like, look, we can vouch for him. Yes, he is our son. And yes, he was born blind. Verse 21. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. They're like, don't, don't get me involved with this. Like, the parents don't care either. Like, this is just, oh, it's, it's comical, but it's also painful. The parents don't care that their son's been healed. They're just terrified of being before the Sanhedrin and being asked these questions. And they're like, uh, we don't want to get involved. Yeah, that's our son. We don't know what happened. He is not a minor. He's an adult. Talk to him. Don't get us involved in your investigation. His parents said these things. Here's why. Because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, to be Messiah, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So to be put out of the synagogue means to be like excommunicated, but it means to be completely alienated and put out of Jewish communal life. It, it was losing everything. And so they did not want to have their lives sabotaged. And so like, look, we don't know. We have nothing to add to this. You talk to him. Here's the thing, though. The Old Testament, we don't have time, but I could show you several places 
where the healing of blindness is a messianic sign. This, this is what allowed people to know when the Messiah comes, he will heal blindness. He will set captives free. He will be a light to the nations. And so they knew that the Messiah would heal blindness. That wasn't the issue. They just couldn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah because he wasn't following their man-made rules. So they called in the parents. And so they want to make sure that they're getting all of the witnesses and all their information. And so let's keep reading in verse 24 and 25. So for the second time, here we go again. They called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Why is he a sinner? Because he breaks their man-made laws. Because he's not following their oral tradition. He's not following their religious system. Because he has the audacity to knead mud and heal someone on the Sabbath. They're like, we know that he is a sinner. Give glory to God. And he answered, verse 25, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Man, they were okay with him confessing that God healed him. At this point, they can't deny anymore that he was blind. Parents confirmed it. Witnesses confirm it. Okay, you were blind. Give God the glory. Admit, confess that it was God that healed you. Stop claiming that it was Jesus who healed you. What they didn't understand is Jesus is God. And so Jesus did heal him, and he is the Messiah, and he is the Son of God. He is eternal with the Father, but they can't believe that. But this man is amazing. He won't back down. In front of all of this inquisition, in front of fearing for his life, he says, listen, here's what I know. I know this. I don't know about your theological debate and your man-made rules. I don't know about that, but here's what I do know. I was blind, but now I see. And this story is pointing to such profound truth beyond physical healing. It is pointing to the real problems with humanity and is pointing to God's plan to rescue us. There are three primary truths in this text that are like steps that build upon each other. Let me give you the first one. We're seeing here is the reality of spiritual blindness. So number one, we're seeing here is the reality of spiritual blindness. Chapter 9 builds on chapter 8, which has already said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then later in John chapter 8, verses 31 through 34, Jesus reveals that being blind spiritually is being a slave to sin. And so when you see here in chapter 9, and you're seeing this reality of this healing of physical blindness, 
if you read it, what it's showing us is fallen human nature and how all of us are born blind. Just like that man, all of us are spiritually born blind and we're born enslaved to our sin. And so based upon our own human nature, we cannot see the glory of Jesus. Just think about it in this story. The man that was born blind, he was blind. The crowds didn't believe. They're blind. The parents were blind. They cared more about their welfare than their son's healing. Blind. Religious leaders were blind. Everyone in this story is blind. No one actually sees the glory of Jesus except for one person. The one who had been healed of his blindness, he could see. Let's keep reading. Verse 26. It gets good. They said to him, what did he do? They're asking him again. Oh, my goodness. They, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already. And you would not Listen, why do you want to hear it again? I love this. Do you, I can't even stop laughing. Do you also want to become his disciples? <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh. Like, he's saying that he now considers himself a follower of the rabbi, of the Messiah. He's like, I'm a disciple of Jesus. Do you also want to follow Jesus and be his disciples? And they reviled him. They're mad. They revile him saying, you are his disciple. And he hasn't even denied it. He's like, yeah, I am. You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And the man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from. And yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God, he does his will. God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born in utter sin and would teach us. And they cast him out. You see, they could not argue with the facts because here were the facts as presented by a humble beggar who had way more truth than the religious educated elites. One, he says, only God can heal blindness. Fact. Number two, the Messiah would usher in the kingdom by restoring sight to the blind. Three, Jesus healed his blindness. For, therefore, Jesus is Messiah and one with God. Just like he said he is. In John 8, Jesus says, I am the truth. He says, the truth will set you free. And so what you're seeing here is this blind man knows the truth. But these religious leaders were blind. And so they could not see 
truth. And beyond restoring of physical sight, the only person in the story that actually has spiritual sight is this man that had been blind because he, with his eyes of faith, he could see the majesty of Jesus. The question is for the Pharisees, why? Like, why would they refuse to believe the truth that was so plainly on display? Well, they were blinded by their desires for their own power and their own status and their own comfort. They had built this massive religious structure where they were at the top of the food chain. They were so arrogant and self-righteous, they did not actually believe that they were sinners that needed rescuing. They were blind. And the common belief that we see here is like you were born in utter sin is this Jewish thought that if you had a birth defect or were born blind, then it's because you sinned in the womb before you were even born or your parents did some very evil sin and that's the reason why you're born blind or with a birth defect is because of your own doing. And so they'll tell him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us and they cast him out of the synagogue. You know what we're seeing here? is the reality of spiritual blindness is what we see from the religious leaders. And left to ourselves, we cannot see the glory of God. But number two, we also see the restoration of spiritual sight. So we see the reality of spiritual blindness, but we also see the restoration of spiritual sight. And we see this in the very beginning of the story. It says that he saw a man blind from birth. In verse 2, and disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So the disciples shared the Pharisees' same world's view, that this man's blindness was a direct cause, direct result of some grievous sin. But Jesus tells them the truth. He was like, no. It doesn't work like that, guys. Our suffering is not, so in this case, being born blind, is not a direct result of a particular sin. Jesus says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. I am the light of the world. Jesus allows hard things happen. He allows evil, and he does allow suffering. God is not the author. God does not do evil. He cannot lie. His nature does not allow him to do evil. He can only do good, and yet God does allow evil to exist in the world. You're thinking, whoa, we're going there. It's already almost lunchtime. Long conversation. I'll give you a very brief Synopsis, I can't answer why questions, and you can't either. Why did your loved one get a disease, or why did so-and-so pass away way too young, or why did this have to happen? Why the, the why questions are endless in our lives, 
And there is no human being that can give you any answer to those profoundly painful why questions in any way that will satisfy you. We, we can't answer those why questions. And let's just be honest. This last week, it was hard. It was not an easy week. I mean, being displaced, no power for five days, and it sounds, it sounds like it was so hard. I know that there are people in other countries that experience so much more suffering, but for Americans, like, we just got a taste this week of real discomfort. It was objectively challenging. And some of you today, maybe you're depressed or you're hurting or you're upset or angry or frustrated, or just flat out exhausted from this last week. I had a dream this week. It's crazy. I don't remember my my dreams often, but I had a dream this week where it was fuzzy, the details, but I remember that somehow I was able to go back in time and, and change every single painful thing that happened to me and I was able to alter all of my bad decisions and my mistakes and where I just messed up so bad in this world. Because if we had time, we don't. I could share so many examples of ways that I have just really messed up in my life and where I have been hurt very, very deeply. And in this dream... I had the opportunity to go back and change those things. And I remember I woke up before I even did it. And I was just pondering and praying about this dream God gave me. And my conclusion is, even if I could go back, praise God that I can't. Because if I could go back, I would mess it up far worse. Because I would be changing things according to my wisdom and according to what I believe is best for my little world. And yet I have a God who is sovereign, who is working all things together for good for those that are called according to purpose and those who love him. And, and so even if I could go back, I wouldn't. Because every single thing that you've been through that has been hard or painful or disappointing, God has used that and is using that to shape you into the person that he needs you to be. There is real pain. And sometimes it's deep. And sometimes it feels like, God, is this ever going to heal? trust that our God has a good purpose. And I wouldn't be the man that I am if I hadn't been through all the things that I've been through. And I can go back and I can see it like dominoes. Or if that hadn't happened, then that wouldn't have happened. If that hadn't happened, then that wouldn't have happened. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't be here today. God does allow hard things to happen and if you ask yourself why, I can't answer those why questions, but I, I can tell you what Jesus told his disciples. This man was born blind, and you've been through your pain so that the works of God would be displayed through you.
so that God could display his glory, so that God could open your eyes. And that's what God has done in my life. He's opened my eyes to who he is in a new and profound way, and I know him deeper than I ever would have if I hadn't been through the pain. What I can tell you is don't resist him. Instead, rest in him. Because this restoration of spiritual sight is no longer being blind to the glory of Jesus. Receiving spiritual sight is being set free from slavery to sin. It is tasting salvation itself. Receiving your sight spiritually is seeing Jesus, the light of the world. It is tabernacling, living with Jesus, which is why he had this man go to the pool of Siloam because that was tied to the the Feast of Tabernacles. And receiving spiritual sight is nothing less than a recreation. Why do you think Jesus used mud in his fingertips to heal this man that was blind? Think back to Genesis. God made Adam out of mud and then breathed life into him. And so by using mud to heal the blindness. He was making a statement. He is recreating. He was making all things new. He is the new Adam who is breathing life into new people that are resurrected spiritually, that have spiritual sight, that have new hearts and have had the spirit poured into them. This is what this story is all about. It is about the glory of our crucified and resurrected Redeemer who is the head of a recreated humanity who now worship the King who is worthy, who receives sight. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 through 6 says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to light, to give us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. The enemy is blinding people. We proclaim the gospel, and then people's eyes are opened, and we can see the face of Jesus. We can see him in his glory. And so we said the reality that we're blind, the restoration through Christ, we receive sight. Lastly, as we wrap up, the result. The result of spiritual sight. Let's finish the story and the message. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. Having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? Now, this is from Daniel 7. This means Messiah, not just a human, okay? He says, do you believe in the son of God? And he answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is I who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And Jesus said, 
for the judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Yes, they were blind. And yes, this man received spiritual sight and the result was worship. The whole theme of John 9 is God displaying his glory by Jesus, restoring the sight of his people. And this is a point of everything. It's all about worship. He gives us sight so that we will worship. Like this man, what was the result of his sight? He could see Jesus and he worshiped. That's what happens. We treasure Jesus. Now, let me just tell you something. If this man had caved into the Pharisees and said, no, it wasn't Jesus. It must have been me, just the son, and I wasn't paying attention. It was God that healed me. Then he would have not been cast out of the Sanhedrin. He could have gone with sights now and gone to synagogue and read the Torah for the first time for himself. He could have learned a trade and provide for himself and maybe meet a woman and get married. He could have had a great life if he would have just denied Jesus. Instead, he said, I was once blind, now I see. And he worshiped Jesus. And what happened to him? He was kicked out of the synagogue, which meant no networking, which meant no trade, no job, no wife, no future. He made his life exponentially harder by being kicked out of the fellowship. Do you see him complaining? Do you see him regretting anything? Do you see him feeling sorry for himself? No. He worshiped Jesus. He could care less about what he lost because he gained Jesus. And all of his pain was nothing compared to everything that he had in Jesus. Jesus has authority over everything. You see it here over the Sabbath, the religious leaders, over blindness, over the enemy, over sin. Jesus has literally eye-opening authority. Like he opens our eyes because of his authority. And so, yes, there's a reality of blindness. Yes, Jesus is restoring sight for the ultimate result of worshiping him. For we proclaim, not ourselves, but Jesus Christ, our Lord. For God said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light, the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ.